Morning, everyone. How are we doing today? We're all good? Everyone's good? We're surviving the onslaught of winter that has begun early. So just to, just to zoom out a little bit, where we're at in the sermon series um, for, these, for these few weeks is we're in, we're in the book of Psalms. Uh, the first book of the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is actually divided up into five books. Uh, you may or may not have known that. Uh, and so we're just looking at several psalms from the first section of the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 1 through 42. We're just looking at a few different selections of those. Uh, for at least this week, next week, and the week after that, then we will begin an Advent series. It's almost Christmas time. One of the things I did, and I talked about this a little bit last week, is I picked psalms at random. I didn't try to pick different psalms that had different themes. I just I picked them at random. I let God pick them, really. Uh, and we've had, we've had a theme that has popped up in all of these psalms, a theme of lament, a theme of crying out to God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of everything that is wrong in our, in our lives. We talked a few weeks ago about how often we get the Christian message that when you come to church, you're supposed to come to church with a big old smile on your face. Because church is a place to rejoice. We're here to sing praise music. If you have any troubles in your life or trials or anything you're sad or upset about, you have to stuff that. At least that's the message that we get. But hopefully in going through these psalms, hopefully in going through these psalms of lament, psalms of complaint, psalms where David or the psalmist cries out to God in the midst of his suffering, hopefully this has given you permission to acknowledge the trials in your life to come into this place, to come into the house of God, amongst the people of God, and cry out and say, and, and yearn, really, for the time that is to come, for the time when the kingdom finally comes and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Psalm 27 this morning falls into the same, into really the same category. It has a much different tone. It has a celebratory tone but it really, the content of it is pretty similar to a lot of the psalms that we've been looking at. So last week, if you remember, we looked at Psalm 17, and the scripture doesn't tell us what, it's, what Psalm 17 is about, but we imagined last week that it, it fits in the story of David when he's fleeing from Saul. This psalm fits really well in that story, too. We don't know when this psalm was written. It's listed as a psalm of David. But we don't know exactly when in his life it would have been written. But I, I think that it fits really well that if we imagine it, that we imagine it just a few days after, perhaps, Psalm 17 was written. So in Psalm 17, David cries out to God and he pleads for deliverance. And in Psalm 27, David cries out to God and he thanks God for deliverance in the middle of all of these attacks by his enemies. See, David lived about a thousand years before Jesus Christ lived. He lived about 3,000 years ago. David was, if you think about the kings of Israel, if you think about the notable people in Israel's past, he's the guy. He is the great king of Israel. He's the archetype. If you think of the golden, um, you know, sort of the golden image of who the best king is, who the most notable king is, it's King David. King David was the first in a long line of kings, stretching eventually down to Jesus Christ, but that's another sermon for another day. But David was not the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel was King Saul. And Saul had the opportunity to have all of his children be kings of Israel after him, but that didn't come to pass. 
because Saul wasn't the king like he should have been. He rejected God's ways. He disobeyed God. So God told Saul, he said, hey, you're not going to be king your entire life. Your son's not going to be your king after you. Instead, someone else is going to come sit on the throne, and that someone else was David. David was anointed, excuse me, David was anointed as a teenager, but he didn't become king as a teenager. He had to wait years. He had to wait decades. And in some of those years, through a series of events after he had killed Goliath, David was invited in to the household of King Saul. This man who he would replace as king, Saul kind of embraced him and welcomed him in. David became really good friends with Jonathan, Saul's son. But that didn't last forever. It didn't really even last for long. Eventually, Saul kicks David out. David hadn't done anything wrong. David hadn't plotted any treason. He wasn't making plans in his mind to launch a coup against Saul. Nothing like that. David was, he was a faithful servant of Saul. But Saul got it in his mind that David was a threat, that David was going to overthrow him. So Saul kicks David out, and he goes after him militarily. And so for a while, for years, David wandered around the wilderness running from Saul. He made allies with some of Israel's enemies and actually fought alongside Israel's enemies for a time. David wandered. David was attacked on every side. And in Psalm 17, which we looked at last week, David cries out to God and says, God, I, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything worthy of being pursued by the king. I haven't done a crime. I haven't committed treason. I'm innocent. Be on my side. Deliver me from these wicked men. And David says something at the end, of, and again, this is still last week's sermon, but he says something at the end of Psalm 17. He says, my soul will be satisfied in seeing God's face. Because David knew that even though he had nothing, nothing of real value when it comes to worldly things, David had God. David had the thing that truly satisfies him. And I think the psalm that we're about to read fits really well if David's prayer was answered, if he had experienced deliverance, if he had at least experienced the grace of God in his life and, and had a renewed confidence that God would deliver him in the midst of his troubles, in the midst of fleeing from the king and having his life in jeopardy. With all of that in mind, uh, let's read Psalm 27. Hear these words as I read them. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. 
Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. David writes this psalm from a place of confidence in who his God is. He cries out at the beginning, The Lord is my light and my salvation. God is his joy. David finds his joy in God. He is his light uh, that lights the path of David. He guides his steps. He brings him joy. And God is David's salvation. We think when we hear that word, we think appropriately of salvation when it comes to our sin and our personal relationship with God. David here is probably more talking about God is my deliverance, my deliverance from these enemies. God's the one who is going to deliver me from all of the enemies that surround me. And of course we know that God is the one who also delivers our souls from evil. But here David's praising God because his fortress, the one who is on David's side, it's not an earthly king. It's not an ally you know, from one of the surrounding nations that he boasts about here. That's not what David does. He doesn't say, hey, I've made some really good alliances, so look at, you know, God, I'm going to be delivered. It's not what David says. God is his refuge. God is his deliverance. God is on his side. So David asks the question, whom shall I fear? Though all of the armies of the earth surround David, though all of the armies attack him, If he's besieged on every side, he asks the question, who will I fear? How can I fear anyone? Because God is on my side. And God was on his side. God did protect David. God did deliver David from all of the men, all of the evil people, all of the uh, the opponents, the enemies that attacked David. God was on David's side. God preserved his life. God brought David. He delivered him from this trial. He spared his life from King Saul. And eventually he put David on the throne of Israel, where David had great military success. And he became king for years. And his sons ruled after him for generations on the same throne. God did protect David. Though an army besiege me, he writes, my heart will not fear. Even though war breaks out against me, even then will I be confident. David knew where his trust was placed. It was trust, his, excuse me, his trust was placed in God and God alone. Because with God on his side, what could the armies of men do? He would be delivered, and he would surely be delivered. David rejoices in the presence of God. He writes, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. And this is kind of, this is an interesting request if you step back and think about it. This is verse number four. One thing I ask of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. 
For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. See, David knew that God was his protection, but he also knew that God was his only hope. God was his only satisfaction. We saw this at the end of the psalm last week. I will look to God, and he alone will be my, my satisfaction. I will be satisfied when I see his face. All of the things of this world, all of the created things that are, that are good, that were created by God, none of those things can satisfy us. David's one desire here was not for any lesser, earthly, temporary thing. He did not say, my only desire is to you know, go back to his wife and to continue a relationship. His only desire was not to, to sit on the throne of Israel. It was none of those things. David's only desire was to see the face of the Lord, to dwell in his house, to dwell in his temple, because David knew that all of his satisfaction would come from God. Even though he was surrounded on every side, even though at this time he probably couldn't worship in the temple, he couldn't go to the temple and worship God along with the, the singers as he would like. He couldn't sing to God. David longed for that. He longed to go into the presence of God. He longed to worship there. He longed to see God's face because he knew from where the only satisfaction comes. David in Psalm 27 doesn't just he doesn't just talk about deliverance from his enemies. He also talks about deliverance from his friends. Verse number 12, do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. David wasn't just worried about, about military attacks. He was worried about false witnesses. There were people who were spreading lies about David. And this may have been a reference to King Saul. We don't know this. This is conjecture, but it fits really well. David may have been saying, hey, I, King Saul used to be a person that I had a relationship with, that I trusted but he kicked me out as though I had committed treason against him. I didn't. I didn't do anything wrong. But he's spreading these rumors about me. He's bringing these accusations against me. David has enemies surrounding him. He has former friends surrounding him, breathing out lies. David feels so betrayed during this time. He feels so much like everyone is against him. And in verse number 10, he writes, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Now, we don't know if David's parents actually forsook him. We don't know if they actually abandoned him. But David felt like everyone was against him, to the point where even his father and mother abandoned him. But he knows that even if his father and mother forsake him, even if that comes to pass, he writes, the Lord will receive me. David knows the deep and abiding love of God is more than enough for him. Though he faces military attacks, though he faces slander on his character, though it feels like everyone who is close to him has rejected him and pushed him off to the side, even though all of that has happened, David knows that God will receive him. And he longs to go to the temple. He longs to worship God. 
the God who will never betray him, the God who will never go back on him, the God who will always be found, the God who will always love him, the God who will always be his light and his salvation. Who will he fear? Will he fear enemies? No. Will he fear rejection from those closest to him? No. Because God is his light. God is his salvation. And though everyone else reject him, the Lord will receive him. Because God loves him above all. I know that there's a lot of pain in this congregation. Some of us in here have faced that rejection from loved ones. Perhaps it's a child who has gone astray. Rejected you as their parent. They said, hey, I, don't, I would rather be, I would rather have no parents than know you as a parent. Some in here have faced relationships breaking down. You've gone through divorce. You've gone through breakups. You've felt that pain. Some of you have felt fathers and mothers forsaking you. You felt the pain of being rejected by family, by friends, by those who are close to you. That's a real pain. That's a pain that we go through. But know this, that no matter who in this world rejects us, that does not mean that you are unworthy of love. Because God loves you deeply. And God loves you passionately. David rejoiced that even though his parents may abandon him or it felt like his parents would abandon him, even though that happened, God would receive him. And child of God, I beg you to hear this today. Though others may have rejected you, God loves you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you. God has not chosen to reject you. God has chosen, even though we have chosen to reject him, he has chosen to reach down to us, to extend his hand to us, to provide a way for salvation for us so that our sin doesn't have to keep us apart from God. Our sin is our fault. Our sin is the thing that keeps us from God. But God doesn't say, hey, come back to me when you get rid of your sin. No, he doesn't say that. God says, I will get rid of your sin for you. I will take away the barrier that you have put up between us. And we can have a full and deep relationship with him. God has made a way for us to have that relationship. And though those around us will fail us, those close to us may reject us, those we love may not reciprocate our love as they should or as we would want. Know that you are deeply beloved by God, and if you seek his face, he will be found. If you ask for forgiveness, he will grant it. If you come to the sanctuary of the Lord in order to see God and to see who he is, he will show himself to you. God will receive you. He will always receive you. God can be your light and your salvation. I want to point out a couple things before we conclude today. David comes to the sanctuary, right? In David's day, there was a building. There was a tent, a tabernacle, where the presence of God 
physically dwelt. And if you wanted to worship God correctly, you were supposed to go to the place, offer sacrifices as prescribed, and seek the face of God in that way. And that's what David's saying here. He said, oh, that I could live in that place. Oh, that I could go see the face of God when I wake up every single day. That I could dwell in God's house, dwell in God's tabernacle, and see God's face in that way. He longs for that. He's separated from that. What is the house of God today? We may be tempted to think that it's this building. We may be tempted to think that the house of God is, you know, the studs and the walls, the carpet, these pews, perhaps this wooden lectern. That's not the house of God. God's temple exists today, and it's in the body of believers. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he tells them that your body is the temple of God. Now, sometimes we read that as our physical body is the temple of God, and, you know, all of us, God kind of dwells inside all of us. But that's not what Paul's saying there. Paul's saying that the body of believers, the body of Christ, the church is the temple of God. God meets with us when we gather as a body. When we, Peace Presbyterian Church, come together in order to worship God, when two or three are gathered in God's name, he says, there am I in the midst of them. So when we gather together today, this is how we see God. Not in full yet. See, when David went to the tabernacle, he did not see the full glory of God. It was behind a curtain, right? It was mediated. You, have to, you had to offer sacrifices. You couldn't go into the full presence of God. Only the high priest could do that, and only, that was only once a year. And when we meet and gather, we don't see the full presence of God in the church we see, as Paul writes, through a glass darkly, sort of, sort of through a hazy glass. We don't see everything as it should be, but we see it. When we gather as a church and hear the preaching of the word of God, we're not hearing the words of a human being. We're not hearing my words. These are not my words that I'm telling you. We are hearing the words of God. When we come and we partake of communion, as we did last week, we're not just partaking of bread and partaking of grape juice or wine. We are partaking of the very idea that God gave himself for us. That is God revealing himself to us, God coming down to us. That is how we partake of God himself. And in a few minutes, when we dismiss from this place and we go on into the wolf room and we share a meal together as a church, we experience that fellowship together we are experiencing the fellowship of God. Because the temple for today is in this body of believers. We are God to each other. I encourage all of you, though we in this room experience rejection, though we are not loved as we should be, let this body of believers love you. Find a family here. Experience the love of God poured out for you as we embrace you as a family, as we love you. That's one of the beautiful things about the church is we are united not by blood. You know, it's not because we're all related to each other, but that's not our common bond. It's not culture. 
We're not coming here because, you know, we all share a language or a, a culture. We come united, not by any of those superficial things, but we come united by Jesus Christ and because of what he has done. Regardless of our differences, regardless of our different preferences, our different political beliefs, our different heritages, we are united because of what Christ has done for us. We come here and we are accepted not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done. And because we are united by Christ, we can have a fellowship that is deeper than any fellowship apart from this place. This is the true love of God. That he has died for us, that he has poured out his love for us, and that he has given us the church where we can experience God, where we can meet him, and where we can love each other on God's behalf. And we long for the day when everything is made right. We long for the day when the kingdom comes, when we finally see God's presence in full. Let me conclude by reading the last two verses. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Friends, come see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Come be embraced. Come be loved by God as we love you as a church. And wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord because all will be made right. Let's pray together.